0: Okay, good morning everybody, Um, or good afternoon, whatever it is, I'm not quite sure, still morning. Um, Okay, I'm from a very different background to most of you here. I don't work in computing, I don't work in psychology, I'm a historian originally, who somehow, through a circuitous route, ended up in a sociology department. I mainly do work on surveillance and security in major global cities like Tokyo, Rio de Janeiro, and London, Uh, and my PhD was about the NSA and its geography in Britain way back in 2000 or so. Um, However, today I'm going to talk about some slightly different things. I'm very interested in thinking in a very large scale about the futures, the social futures of various kinds. So what I'm going to talk about today is the kind of imagined social futures for ubiquitous computing scenarios in cities, in fact, in human society generally. And what I'm going to argue, as you'll see, is that there's a a kind of movement, don't worry about the details here, a movement towards increasingly embedding forms of security, and I mean this in the broad sense, not just computer security, but forms of security in the everyday environments in which we exist. Okay, before everybody says, oh, well, that's not new, I'll come to that in a second. This isn't a linear chronology. It's not something I'm saying it's never happened before and it's going to happen so much in the future that we can't get out of it. This is not some dystopic fantasy on my part. What I'm interested in is the fantasies of control embodied in ideas of security that you can sort of get coming out of all the stories we're told about the future ubiquitous computing scenarios that we see. So it's a kind of analytical effort to kind of uh, uncover these, uh, these sort of hidden stories, these narratives that exist in portrayals of the future that we're given in various ways by looking at current technological developments. I'm not saying this is these scenarios I'm gonna present are some kind of definitive, definite thing that's gonna happen. I'm not saying this is all gonna work either, by the way. So we'll talk about this kind of thing afterwards. This is not smooth, ubiquitous, and security development, as one knows, is incredibly uneven and most things work, most things fail most of the time, actually, rather than working. So these techno-futures I'm going to look at are fantasies, they are utopias or dystopias, depending on your point of view, and we'll look at some of these. As I said, this is not some linear chronology, so we have many examples throughout history. In fact, one could argue the entire history of urban design and architecture is a history of control and security. Um, One can look, for example, at the history of overt things, like defensive landscapes, security-scapes, these are the city walls of Lille in France after the introduction of the Trace Italienne security system that allowed cities, small cities to defend themselves against mass armies. This is ancient Beijing, in which the city was divided intensely by internal walls, guard systems, and, set, and uh, forms of a curfew that people could not go out at night and prevented from doing so. Hidden security has also been part of our culture for a very long time. This is a ha-ha an aristocratic device to allow the landowner to look over his extensive estates, and it would be him in this case, um, and, and be able to not see the security that was there to stop uh, animals, usually, from getting onto his land. Uh, animals. So, it's called a ha-ha, because you come up to it and go, ha-ha. <laughs> 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 you fall in? Then it would be called a ah! <laughs> anyway. And, of course, uh, things that we're more familiar with in the the recent past, this is the Lockheed Aircraft Factory, where, you might say, in the Second World War, it's actually under this camouflage coating here that was put over the top of it to hide it from bombers. So hidden forms of security, that's what it actually looked like underneath, the the places where the people lived in the factory, and the whole factory was covered by this camouflage fabric. So hidden forms of security. These are all things that existed historically, so it's not entirely new. What I'm arguing today and what I'm going to mention is what the difference is that is made by forms of new ubiquitous computing technologies. And we all know the kind of trends. I'll just mention some of these specific technological trajectories to give you an idea of the kind of things I'm talking about and what I'm suggesting might be the consequences of the widespread introduction and use of these sorts of things. So the first thing is that size, as we know, matters in various ways, but this is not the usual direction that we think about size mattering. This is things being very small matters intensely. Uh, We're seeing workable sensor systems at smaller and smaller scales. On the top left is a a device that was invented back in the early 2000s at Berkeley. Um, Dust Networks created this. It's a very small sensor system. Um, however, Hitachi have now developed sensor systems, and these are little nano—various, not nano yet, but very small um, sensors that c- can be wirelessly networked together to do various jobs. They create a kind of network, sensor network. Um, and they're now down to the size of a human hair, as you can see here. These are the, the little, little devices scattered next to a human hair. So we're seeing very, very small sensor systems being created. Why does this make a difference? Well, if there's a camera in this room at the moment, you can see it. You can see if you're being watched, and you can make some decision about what you want to do about that in various ways. These systems, of course, you couldn't see. If there was a sensor network scattered about this room made of smart dust, it could already be here. One would not know um, overtly. I'm going to say why I think this is important in a minute. We're also now increasingly used to mobile forms of monitoring, sensors that can move, hide, fly away, disappear at will. So we've moved from massive... Predator drones operating over the skies of Afghanistan, Pakistan, and the Gulf. They are operated by the US military to small uh, police operated drones in cities, now to small, even smaller hobbyist type drones and tiny devices based on insect mobility and so on. We've also of course got mobile surveillance that is always with you. And I love this, this, these kind of Google publicity things. They're so, anyway, every happy, smiling people equipped with their own surveillance devices that we're all gonna know and love within a few years, aren't we? Mm-hmm. And of course, the devices that we use for surveillance and security are now changing. They're not what we expected them to be anymore. So here, for example, is the development of a device based on terahertz wave scanning. because the currently least used form of body scanning uh, in airports. But it's now been shown theoretically in 2009 that these devices could be put on a CMOS chip uh, and placed in a, in a video camera. And now, just last year, the New York Police Department were testing portable naked scanning systems on the streets of New York that could be carried and set up so you could actually do scan passers by basically stripped their clothes off virtually to see what they were carrying. Apparently this gets past search and seizure laws, I don't think it does really, but this, is, this was the, uh, the theory. And these things will be smaller within a few years. This is a, a clunky early prototype. We also can't be sure whether things that exist in the natural world anymore are secure devices or not. These two devices are just one of many examples of biomimetic surveillance and security devices. On the top left, you have a, a uh, robot security surveillance snake developed by Technion, uh, the technical university in Israel. It's associated with the Israeli military. And on the bottom left, you have the famous nano hummingbird, a, uh, a really rather beautiful and remarkable um, device, but is also, of course, created as part of a DARPA project and it's designed to be a persistent mobile surveillance device eventually that will be able to interact with its environment. Draw electricity from power cables and so on. This is the vision that DARPA has for these things. So, flying about your city will be things that look like a bird, but actually they're not, they're very much a surveillance device. The CIA, of course, famously, has also grown uh, beetles that have surveillance devices inside their body by inserting the, the sensor systems in the pupil stage, they grow around them. So, the beetle itself is a living creature that is actually a surveillance device that can walk around. So these things are going to get more and more, they're going to proliferate in more and more different forms. So you can't be certain that a bird is a bird, you can't be certain that a snake is a snake anymore. You also, of course, can't be certain that there aren't many of these operating together. Robots can be anywhere, waiting, they can work together and learn, we've seen all these things. So these are various kinds of different deployments of drone systems. We also can't be sure that even the, um, I've just actually missed a, a thing out here, even the landscapes that we take for granted are actually actually what they seem to be. So there are now so-called security geotextiles which can be created that underlie actual landscapes and be dug in, that create the whole landscape as a surveillance and security system. So if you go into the woods today, you may be in for a big surprise. It may not be the woods that you know. (laughs) And so these are already being deployed in various ways, in early and primitive forms, however most of these things are not the fully working automated types of security systems that I've been showing you as prototypes. This is a, an ADS Century Tech stationary remote controlled weapon station on the borders of Israel Palestine. This still has human control, but it can be automated. It can be automated. And think about what an automated killing system on a border means. You think that couldn't exist? Well, this is part of the eads Cassidian Integrated Border Surveillance Solution in Saudi Arabia, where there are indeed mobile um, automated killing zones. We can actually create a system that will shoot first and not bother asking questions at all. DDR, anybody? Pardon? Deutsche-Demokratische Republik, anybody? Sorry, I can't... The Berlin Wall. Yes, yes. Yeah, they, of course, they've, they've, these things have existed in the past. There are always historical pre- precursors and pre-examples. And pre- so there's, sorry, that's the uh, the Gmax uh, geotextile system. That looks like the woods, but in fact, it's a security system dug in underneath the woods. So what does this all mean? Just summing up very briefly, I think technologies of control are being increasingly distributed and in networked and scattered throughout a society, built into cities, built into places. Potentially, and again, this is a fantasy, a scenario of a potential trajectory, which I think is very important for discussion because if we're going to develop political responses to these kinds of things, and that's what I'm interested in, one has to play with scenarios and understand what the possibilities are. It potentially enables government, and I read by this I mean the management of populations generally, that's all of us, government to be essentially all around us, to be built in, with no obvious place or interface. We're used to government being something, the parliament on the hill. We're used to police officers, being visible and being able to see and talk to them. But increasingly what I'm arguing here is that these kinds of technologies allow government to be ambient, to become something that's part of the environment, for our existence to be managed in various ways without necessarily us being aware of it or being able to respond in ways that we traditionally have politically. So, for example, smart cities, in many cases the ideas of these smart cities build in subtle forms of socialization and behavioral conditioning rather like a digital Tony Blair Looking over your shoulder making sure that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons. Some of us may think this is great. I mean, this has been a utopian dream of liberal reformers for many years, Jeremy Bentham's panopticon onwards. But many of us would rather not have this kind of <laughs> subtle behavioural conditioning. And, of course, these, as I said, these things have existed for many years in different forms before. But this, these kinds of technologies allow the hiding of these systems in ways that have been, I think, uh, have not happened before. Of course, these fantasies are never fully realized. I think there's, there's unevenness, incompleteness, breakdown, failure, forms of revelation, Snowden files and so on, resistance and revolution. And revolution seem to be remarkably easy. They happen all the time these days. However, the problem is, is the political itself now already so devalued that this kind of development won't even attract notice, let alone reaction or serious discussion amongst the majority of people. What forms of revelation are possible when you can no longer see the things that you're talking about or are no longer aware of them? It's a comparable problem to the vanishing kinds of uh, emotional cues that are just being talked about on the internet. How can one respond when one doesn't even know what one is uh, looking for, hearing, and so on? our forms of transparency adequate? Is it adequate that the things are revealed anyway? Is that enough to form a response? And I would argue that one of the things that is not very useful in this response... in this this kind of society is the reliance on privacy as a rallying cry or a tactic. I think in many cases, privacy is inadequate for dealing with the kinds of of situation we're now entering into. Not that we shouldn't have it, but it's just not enough to base our responses around rules and laws of privacy. So do we do things like surveillance? Do we we watch back? Do Do we use security against security, like the cyclist in London? Do we obscure ourselves and make ourselves illegible and unreadable in these, envir- in these ambient government environments, like Adam Harvey's experiments with you know, anti-surveillance clothing and makeup? Do we destroy? Do we get out there and break the cameras? Do we say enough is enough, become Luddites, and you know, fight back against these kinds of technologies? This is happening in Germany right now, where CCTV destruction has become an online game, where you get extra points for breaking as many cameras as possible. What, I'm, what I think is actually going to happen is that we're in danger without the kind of political debate that renders these things visible and illegible in political, in political terms. We're in danger of creating more and more reaction against these kinds of systems if people are excluded from the discussions about them. I think that's the big danger, especially for many people who are systems designers or involved in this kind of thing as developers. The more that people do not understand what is going on, and suddenly wake up in the kind of society they don't understand, the more this kind of reaction is possible and I think increasingly likely. And that's my conclusion today. Okay.